Today we are talking with Dr. Nicola Millard, Principal Innovation Partner at BP. Welcome everyone to our 39th in our series of podcasts brought to you by Good Thinking, London's digital mental wellbeing service, providing round-the-clock mental wellbeing support for those living or working in London. This is Sonia Etetwani and in this podcast we bring back Dr. Nicola Millard 14 months since we last spoke to her about remote working during the first lockdown period. Over the course of the pandemic, Nicola has been considering what work may look like as we emerge from the pandemic, what hybrid working is and how to do it well. Over to you, Richard and Nicola. Thank you, Sonia. And thank you, Nicola, for making time to talk to us again. The last time we spoke, it was quite early in COVID, I think 13th of May, when we were all, I guess, reeling from all the changes. And, and of course, one of the major changes that most of us were adapting to at that point was starting to work from home. And I think it was just around that time as well, there were quite a lot of announcements. And one of the ones that grabbed everyone's attention was that Twitter announced that all of its staff could work from home forever. Because I guess there was so much uncertainty, so much change. That seemed to be a very supportive decision. But now, sort of 14 months later, we've learned a lot, much has changed. And I just wondered, with the wealth of experience you have about thinking about how we work and where we work, have there been any particular insights that have emerged from you since that last podcast? Gosh, well, it seems a long time ago, that podcast now, doesn't it? Because I'm not sure time's linear anymore. It's kind of, what does time mean? Um, No, it's been a really, really interesting 14 months, frankly. It's been a busy 14 months, really trying to sort through the data on what I kind of call a a massive remote working experiment, really, that we've been seeing on a global basis, which is, um, well, pretty unique. It's it's been almost a gift for for people like myself, uh, albeit an unpleasant gift, but just looking at, at, you know, how organisations are adapted, um, how our experiences have changed during the pandemic. You know, video fatigue at the beginning of the pandemic wasn't really a thing. It kind of is now. And, and I keep saying that's not a problem with video necessarily. That's probably more of a problem with meetings. Maybe we'll touch on that a little bit later. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's been a really interesting time just getting lots and lots of data through from all sorts of organisations where I have the pleasure of working with a lot of corporates around the world and in the UK and in the public sector as well, just sort of finding out what people's experiences of the pandemic are and what we can learn from it and what the positives have been and what the negatives have been. And then really trying to sort of coalesce that together and look forward beyond hopefully this dark tunnel that we have been in for seemingly forever and sort of say, well, what is next? What's work likely to look like? And I think one of the things is it's um it's not very clear, frankly. Even policymakers are not entirely in agreement as to what what we're going to emerge with. Um, I mean, we have uh, various of the CEOs, particularly of banks. Um, I know um, the, the uh, CEO of Goldman Sachs uh, called uh, remote working an aberration. Uh, we've got J- JP Morgan preparing well, I think a lot of them are already back in the office. I think even even Netflix um, has uh, not necessarily embraced this idea of, of remote working. And then on the other side, you, I mean, I, I keep saying what I'm trying to do now is to sort through data and say, is there a pattern? So the obvious one might be, you know, banks, obviously banks can't work remotely. But Actually, we've got, you know, Lloyd's, for example, saying, yeah, you can you can work from home nationwide similarly. So it's not 
a sector thing necessarily. I think, you know, we've got Facebook now also coming out to say that, uh, that all, all staff can work uh, long term um, remotely. Indeed, I believe Mark Zuckerberg himself has said, don't expect to see me in the office. Um, so he's leading by example on that one. Um, but, you know, for every Facebook and Twitter, there's a Netflix. So again, it's not necessarily to do with the sector. It's even intriguing that, I mean, construction would be an obvious one where you go, well, they can't work remotely. But it's quite interesting. Uh, I was reading some stuff last week around um, you know, construction companies who are, obviously, they, they can't do remote working necessarily because it's kind of difficult to build something remotely. Um, but they can offer flexible working. So they're, they're sort of doing a lot of creative stuff around, well, can we offer split shifts or um, tradable shifts or things like that, just to sort of, you know, readjust the way that people people work so i think there's some there's not really a conclusion i can bring in terms of sector specific strategies there's obviously country strategies on top of this as well so uh, we know in the uk that our government is quite keen to see us back in the office um, and indeed if you look in china at the moment they're already back um, and to a certain extent it's probably something to do with how how well um, the pandemic has been controlled in each country but we've got some really fascinating things coming out of uh, for example i Iceland. Um, we've got we've got trials of a four day week looking really really interestingly successful. Um, Ireland have got some really interesting policies encouraging remote work, um, including my favourite policy I think that's come out around um, regenerating rural pubs as uh, co working <laughs> spaces. Uh, I call them poffices, by the way. So you know, you know, if you've you've heard me talk before, I, I've always talked about uh, the coffice as a as a workplace, um, which isn't the home, that isn't the office, it's somewhere in between. But you know, the poffice could be an interesting workplace that I'm not sure I'd be entirely productive in. But I think you know that's a great idea, certainly in terms of I don't necessarily need to commute for two hours into a centralised office. Can I do an active commute, walking, cycling to a place that isn't home? That isn't those four walls of the house. Uh, that gets me out, may, um, allows me to see people occasionally, um, but also repopulates and regenerates areas that really need regeneration. So I think, you know, that there's no consensus of opinion, I think, in terms of the future. And it's going to be an interesting year or so as, as people sort of consolidate those ideas and hopefully experiment a bit, because I think a lot we're, we are kind of stepping into the unknown. So I think uh, experimentation is one thing that uh, I would encourage in this space. It sounds like that uh, global social experiment will continue for some time. One of the phrases that we're hearing a lot about at the moment, though, is something that is called hybrid working. And I believe a large number of companies are definitely supporting that. And I, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your understanding of that term, hybrid working. Yeah, it's the hot topic of the moment. Everyone is saying hybrid is the future. It's quite interesting because, again, having conversations with many, many of my customers, I, I always have to kind of say to them, well, what do you actually mean by hybrid working? And often what you find is, they're largely talking about flexible working. They're talking about the number of, of days that you would spend in an office versus remote. And my feeling is that's flexible working, not hybrid working. And the analogy I use is my favorite hybrid, I have to say, of the moment is there's a donk. <laughs> Now, the Zadonk is half zebra and half donkey. Now, I can tell you that the Zadonk does not spend three days a week as a zebra and two days a week as a donkey. It is a different breed. 
And I actually think that is what we're looking at in terms of hybrid. It's a different breed of work. It's nothing to do with how many days I'm in an office. In fact, the pure definition of hybrid, and uh, there, there are many academics that have defined it, but I know Linda Gratton at London Business School defined it as work that is basically divorced from both time and space. But it's all about the employee experience, effectively. So it's all about enabling people to work wherever and whenever, frankly, they happen to be. I also I'm going to add my own one as well, because I also think um, the opportunity for hybrid is also to make work better for both people and the planet. Um, so I think um, with climate change, um, you know, very much an issue as well. Um, how can we start to rethink practices that makes life a little greener, that reduces carbon, that again is is an ability to reinvent for real positive change. So yeah, my definition of the hybrid is very much around let's just let's just enable people to work. And actually my my whole thing is we get so hung up on things like place and we don't get so hung up on the work bit. And actually, it's probably the work bit that matters way more than where we work. So how do we make work work um that's that's kind of my mantra that's really interesting because when you talk about the zedonk and i just want to check that is a real hybrid it's not some sort of yeah yeah it's it actually looks at it's it's a weird looking creature it looks like a donkey with zebra leg warmers basically but yes it's it's rare but it is a real creature so that is something completely different from both the zebra and the donkey. And and I guess what you're inviting us to do at this point then, Nicola, is think about, what well, I suppose for, for myself, from a psychological perspective, almost like a an identity crisis that work will be having now as, you know, what is work? You know, what does it look like? Who is it? What is it? What does it do? <laughs> sort of yeah. thing. And 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 it, it, it's a really interesting idea because there's a donkey is isn't a donkey, and it isn't you know three days a week a zebra, as you say. It is something different and distinct. And how can we start to experiment? I, I guess as one often sees, particularly with teenagers, in a way where they're they're trying to forge an identity and a sense of themselves with, with all the values that you've touched on, climate change just being a key one too. That this is a a really interesting time then for us to rethink and perhaps work together with no pun intended to to create a better world as well. Oh, completely. I think it's an exciting time for work, I think. Um, and it's, it's also interesting. I've been delving a little bit into the sort of history of why we work in the way that we work now. Um, and a lot of it is actually derived from the Industrial Revolution. Even things, the concept of the weekend is a relatively new concept um, at, that was derived by you know the factories to to give people a little bit of a break from their their hard five day week but I think it's not just that that's that's a legacy from the industrial revolution even things like you know nine to five checking uh, sort of clocking in clocking off that that kind of whole time aspect to work is an interesting one that that really is a legacy from factory even the way that we we measure productivity L- largely if you are in in something that produces something very tangible if you are actually making something that's relatively easy to measure from an input output perspective but I would say actually if we look at the population that has most benefited from remote working and it isn't everyone it's about about 25 26 percent of the population generally that you know those generally are are workers that are knowledge workers and knowledge workers don't produce tangible output 
Um, so I think even when we step back and say, well, how on earth do we measure productivity from a knowledge work perspective? Um, all of that's up, up for grabs um, because I think it's far less straightforward than how many meetings have I had and who have I had meetings with. We can see that, that, that it's in the data, but actually it's the output of the work that's the interesting bit. So, I mean, that's a big one that um, our, our lovely innovation ecosystem as part of BT, and we work with lovely people like the, the guys from MIT and the guys from Cambridge. And, you know, those guys are uh, applying their big brains to, well, how on earth do we measure productivity if you're a remote worker doing primarily knowledge work? What matters? How do we measure it? Can we measure it? Obviously, elements of well-being come in there. Um, well-being is potentially a measure that's a good one. So in order to work productively, you probably need to work well. So that's one possibility. There's some other stuff around return on ideas. So if I have an idea, how does that permeate across an organization? How does that get adopted? And that really goes into fascinating things like human network theory, which again, probably exists somewhere in the data, but isn't necessarily easy to, to measure. Well, I think that's also a, a fascinating example that I would recognize when you go back to the Industrial Revolution and the way the factories, in a way, established a template that we've still been sort of trying to force our working uh, lives into. Because I think when many of us started working remotely, it was just sort of peculiar how much we were still just trying to, uh, I guess, copy and paste our pre-pandemic life at work into technology, remote working, etc. Et so I think your, your invitation there seems to be to, you know, finally throw off um, those, uh, I want to say shackles, I guess, but, but break the mold of those first industrial revolution patterns and actually rethink. So given that, are we at a point where we have some ideas of how to do hybrid working well? You've touched on well-being, what are the sort of areas we might need to think about? And I'm guessing the office, the coffees, or no, the poffice might be one of those places where we might want to start. Well, yes and no, because, you know, place does have its place, oddly enough. I think one of the things when you when you ask people what they've missed during the pandemic, it, it is the office. And I keep saying it's not the building they've missed, frankly, or the commute. Um, it's the people. It's the socialisation. So I think in terms of the actual physical workplace, the office is definitely not dead. But we know that I, even prior to the pandemic, the function of offices were changing because I think we had, we had realised that work had left the building, really. And obviously, it has literally left the building for the past, uh, you know, 14 months or so. So, so yeah, um, we know that that maybe offices are for a different type of work. And I, I keep saying that largely what we found in terms of, of the place piece, it's really around um, communication, collaboration and creation of community. And I think that that third one is a really interesting one that really has developed in my thinking um, and in my research during the pandemic, because again, it's quite difficult, particularly if you're a new joiner or a, or a young person that's starting on their career. The place piece is easy in, in terms of, you know, when you walk into an office, you get a sense of brand, uh, you get a sense of place, you can observe behaviours. Actually, um, Gillian Tetz just done some really interesting stuff around rituals and behaviours in the office. Uh, she's an anthropologist. So she's been sort of saying, you know, that the office does have that function where you, you literally kind of do learn by being in the room. Um, I think, uh, again, in, being in the room where it happens is very uh, Hamilton. But um, but it, there is there is a, a, a good 
reason to be in an office. Um, now, there are also good reasons not to necessarily be in an office all the time. Certainly, uh, we have learnt, I think, that whether we like working from home or not during the pandemic. So some of us have worked very well. The evidence is it's a 70-30 split. Um, so about 70% of people who were lucky enough to do it um, have said, yeah, it's worked. That doesn't mean I don't want to ever leave my house again. <laughs> um, actually, uh, I think the majority of people, we're, we're, it depends on the survey you look at, surveys you look at, but it's usually between 70 and 90 percent of people are saying that they do want to go to the office occasionally. Um, uh, so they do want to be let out of the house. Um, but, you know, the 30 percent that have really struggled, they are typically skewing younger. Um Again, young people do want that flexibility. So I keep saying it's, it's not one of those things around saying, well, OK, you can only work in an office. I think they want choices. But I think in terms of what benefits, who benefits uh, in, in an office space it is often younger employees. You don't necessarily have the well-established networks that us older people tend to have established over the years of working. And I would also probably class new joiners in organisations as well. I think, uh, you know, it, it's actually very difficult for a lot of new joiners to pick up a lot of that that community vibe without being necessarily in a building. But as I said before, I think we tend to get very obsessed by place and we maybe should think about hybrids as more than just the office. And I think hybrid working, in my opinion, having looked at it and sort of delved into what it means, I firstly think it's quite a hard model to do well. And that's why I think this experimentation piece is very important, because I think we're going to see some really horrible hybrids <laughs> coming out in the uh, in the next uh, you know, few months um, as we are starting to adapt. So that's why I think that experimentation mindset is key, because not all of this is going to work. I think there are a few things that are very obvious that we need to think about. The first big one um, is proximity bias. Um, so, you know, our brains are tribal things, aren't they? They're, they're kind of wired to trust people that we see on a regular basis and established networks. And the problem there, and I always say that the, the, the very obvious first example of proximity bias is simply when you, we get into hybrid meetings which we've probably all done, to be perfectly honest, prior to the pandemic, which is, you know, when you've got people that are split between physical and digital space, uh, the inevitable effect of proximity bias is the people in the room tend to ignore the people who are not in the room. And that is not ideal. Now, I would say in terms of learning, what we have found is that if everyone is sitting in digital space, it's kind of a big leveler. Um, and, uh, you know, if we're all in our little celebrity square, everyone can see us, everyone can contribute. Uh, there, there isn't necessarily a proximity bias. So the learning we take there is if you are in a hybrid meeting, you probably all need to be digital if there are people that are remote. Now, that that does kind of... I mean, there are lots of challenges there, not least your network capacity and your building might be challenged if everyone is sitting on high definition video uh, in a meeting. Um, so, I mean, that's a practical problem. But I think, you know, if you are sort of sitting physically together, how do you try and eliminate that proximity bias? And that also goes into broader than meetings. So out of sight, out of mind management is a problem. So, well, if there is a perception that you are more likely to get a promotion and more likely to get a, a pay rise or a bonus if you are in the office 
you're probably going to want to be in the office. Now, that again is probably not a good idea, given that the evidence is actually remote workers, ironically, often work longer hours than people in an office. Um, we've seen about 40, 49, 50 minutes per day longer, but it's a different kind of day. It's not in one chunk. I call it um, time confetti. Basically, we tend to start earlier, finish later. We might take more breaks during the day. And actually, we could, depending on how you pr uh, define productivity, feel that we are more productive doing that. So th there's there's that. And I think underlying that is making work visible. So again, it's going back to it's the work bit that's really important. And if you look at remote organizations prior to the pandemic, a lot of them had an asynchronous culture or a written culture. So everything got documented so that everybody could see what was going on. And I think, again, a lot of a lot of organizations are going to have to think about how do we make things a little bit more asynchronous? How do they document a lot more? How does that work that isn't in in those four walls of the office? How is that visible to everybody? Because everyone can see people in an office. They can't see people remote. So there's a great deal to think about there. Um, I, I really like that Um uh, collaboration, communication, community sort of idea for for the office in in the the broader sense, and and how um, a sense of, of belonging and and participation, and and for I guess managers then to be thinking about all those little details that would make a workplace more inclusive. Then for mm. wherever you are, oh, I mean, yeah. I, I guess that does then pose a really interesting question about the sort of styles of leadership and, and management that might be supportive of, of a good hybrid uh, model of work. Um, and and is, that, is that going to be a challenge for those leading companies, do you think? Very much so. Although I think, I mean, the focus on the pandemic has been very much around leadership. And I think um, leaders have really had to think about a lot of these things because I think, um, you know, things... Conventional stuff, you know, Tom Peters, traditional leading by walking around. Can't do that in a remote organization. So how, how does virtual uh, remote leading by walking around work? Well, is it leading by Zooming around? Obviously, other platforms are available. I keep saying I keep mentioning <laughs> Zoom, but yes. don't, don't get upset Teams and WebEx and all the rest. I'm, I'm no, only doing don't. it because, absolutely because <laughs> Zoom rhymes with a lot of things. That's the trouble. So so I think, um, you know, how, how do you lead by Zooming around? And that that I mean, the other thing we've learned, I think, around the digital workplace is it, it's very scheduled. It's not particularly spontaneous. Um, so, you know, you've got to schedule in a lot of this stuff. Then I think you know, leaders have to be really good at establishing purpose. And again, partially when you're remote, you can't do that by simply seeing the purpose around you and seeing the behaviours. It has to be kind of laid out very simply. But also, I think, as a story, I think that storytelling aspect to leadership, I really think really becomes important on that one. And the other thing I think that becomes important is the, is the networking piece. So networking skills and leadership, actually not just leaders need to be good at networking in hybrid organisations. I think there's good and bad news on, on a lot of this stuff. Firstly, I think most of us are not very good at networking. I think the evidence from research is that it's about one in three of us are really good networkers. I'm terrible, by the way. Um, but, uh, but you know, I always call the the obvious networkers are, are a little bit like perfect party hosts. So they know pretty much a little bit about everybody. And they're, they're really good at introducing people. And they're, again, creating a purpose because things like collaboration don't happen by magic it happens by purpose so so i think that there's there's a there's a lot around networking but equally i think employees need to be 
particularly good at networking um, in in hybrid organisations as well. Because again, you might not be working with people that you see on a on a regular basis. So how do you establish re-establish those networks? And that has to be intentional. Um, so I think that there's that aspect to it. I think the other thing, I mean, we we've talked about place in hybrid, but we haven't really talked about time. And I think this is a particular challenge again from a from a leadership perspective, but probably beyond as well. In that one of my biggest anxieties is something I call the two-speed organization. And what I mean by that is, as I said before, you know, if you're in an office, you tend to work in a slightly different pattern to when you're remote. And the key actually to hybrid is coordinating quite a lot of the work. Um, but again, I think Firstly, I'm starting to get hybrid in my diary. So, uh, so I, I am. I've been into a couple of offices over the past uh, few weeks. It's been weird, I have to say, but I've suddenly realised that maybe the five to seven meetings I could do during a day when I'm remote, I can probably only do one when I'm actually in an office. So instantly, I I, I can't do quite as many meetings. Now that could be a good thing because I, as I said very briefly up uh, the very beginning, meetings could be one of the big problems we have here. Um, and that relates to both leadership and this sort of asynchronous synchronous thing that I was just talking about. Um, in that meetings are frictionless when when we're looking at uh, a hybrid organization, particularly when you're remote, it's really easy to schedule a meeting. Um, and we've all had, that's what, why we're getting things like Zoom fatigue and things like that, that we've stacked those meetings in 30 to 60 minute chunks, you know, basically back to back. In fact, I was talking to a customer the other day, they were saying that on average, their employees were spending seven seconds between meetings. So that's not productive for a start. And there has been some really interesting research Microsoft did actually on uh, the effects of of those back-to-back meeting days on the brain. Um, and you can just see the brain starting to die <laughs> as, as the meetings go through the day. So you have to say, okay, what we've done is lifted this traditional meeting concept from the analog world to the digital world without questioning, should this meeting actually be a meeting? Could we do this asynchronously? And I think, again, when we look at remote first organizations, they tend to use synchronous stuff, i.e. meetings, to make critical decisions. Um, They've probably done a lot of the pre-work asynchronously, but they do come together to make critical decisions. And the other thing we learn from these remote organizations is they have what usually is called office hours. And that's usually a, a time frame of maybe four hours where everyone agrees that they are available for, for things like synchronous meetings. So I'm not talking from eight in the morning to six at night here. I am talking a window where you actually have these meetings. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense from a productivity perspective, because I think uh, it, it's not a problem with video. There are some issues around video, certainly in terms of feeling as if you're being watched all day. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's very weird, isn't it? When you're on a video call that you're basically looking at yourself in a mirror (laughs) and it's very distracting and I've taken actually to put well either turning the video off or just putting a little bit of paper over my own image so I don't have to look at myself but that can cause a lot of stress as well but I think it's largely it's the number of meetings rather than necessarily video that's the problem. And if I'm understanding that I mean it's also about protecting time for perhaps more depth considerations or or work Mm. or, or research whatever whatever it is that just because we can keep sending each other invites to yet more meetings we perhaps need to be respectful of that need for other time and space to to do work 
Yeah, I I think that also comes back to that notion of productivity. So I'm how am I today? Well, I'm busy. This cult of busyness. And I think, you know, if you define busy as being in a meeting (laughs) from eight in the morning to six o'clock at night, that's what you're kind of going to be doing. Now, I would suggest that maybe that's not a good type of busy. I think the problem with, with things like reflection is it looks as if you're just staring into space. It doesn't look productive by our traditional factory definitions of productivity. And let's we we know, particularly for complex work, that reflection period is really important. And I keep saying, maybe look a little further into f- the future where the thing that was supposed to be changing the future of work comes in. So AI and automation was the thing that was supposed to change the future of work. Um, it didn't quite do that. It was something small and a lot more viral. But if you look at what AI and automation does is it takes away the simple stuff and it leaves us humans with the chaos and the creativity and the empathy. In other words, the stuff that probably benefits from more reflection. So yeah, I think there's some quite interesting stuff around, well, how do we start to rethink the working week, the working day? Hence, I'm interested in the sort of four-day working week experiments for a start. Uh, And even, I mean, I think it comes down to practical problems with the hybrid organization in that if you give people free will as to when they come into an office, they'll come in on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays. And that abbreviates to something quite rude, but I won't go there. But um, (laughs) the problem is Mondays and Fridays. It's like tumbleweed. And the problem then is, you know, office office estate is expensive. So you're over and under utilizing very expensive assets. So I think largely the problem then is how do you incentivize people or encourage people to come in on a Monday and a Friday when that is not the popular time for remote workers to come in, simply because it's a waste of, of a very valuable asset. So much seems to be based then on us developing, I mean, you called it networking, but it, it struck me in a broader sense, sort of social skills, an interest in our colleagues in other departments, I guess is a real opportunity for perhaps breaking down some of those walls or or silos that can occur in organizations Um, and actually being more thoughtful in a way that could make organizations better places, inverted commas, to work. Mm. And that also being supportive then of and you've touched on this in terms of well-being because, you know, somebody who's functioning well and is in a, a good state emotionally is, is likely to be more productive, particularly around those complex areas of work too. So there are lots of opportunities, but it, it does, again, need for us to be moving out of that old factory model into something fit for the 21st century with all the tech we have. Oh, very much so. And I think it's also been interesting during the pandemic to just start to you know, look at the change of dynamics in how people are collaborating and communicating. And certainly from from the data, you know, Microsoft have got some really compelling data around how we've used things like Teams um, during the pandemic. And I think the evidence is that what's happened is that the, the, the strong ties that we had with usually our direct team have got stronger. And partially that's a leadership thing because hopefully the good leaders have made those ties stronger. But to the network point, the weaker ties, in other words, people that are outside your team who you don't work with on a very regular basis have got a lot weaker. And from a from a network perspective, uh, actually, that's not great um, because we do need weak ties as well as strong ties. And uh, there's a lot of talk about you know serendipity, which firstly is I, everyone talks about coffee point conversations. And I must confess, I did trawl through the research 
research to try and find the strong evidence that the coffee point was where it's at. And frankly, I didn't find any evidence. I think I found one paper. And even that was dubious around it was that it wasn't the coffee point. It was the journey to the coffee point that was the valuable thing. But I think the one thing we we do tend to miss from physical meetings is that sort of time where you're getting your coffee and biscuits before the meeting where you just have an informal chat with somebody uh, and that time after the meeting when you're just packing your stuff up because that's a purposeful communication because generally if you're in a meeting with somebody else they're kind of you know probably doing something similar so you know how do we recreate those in a hybrid organization it's a lot harder to do digital serendipity having said that think it is possible tools like social media within enterprises could introduce an awareness of what other people are doing. There are some horrifying um, things. Well, scary, maybe, maybe not horrifying, scary stuff going on in the digital serendipity space. There there are a a couple of apps out there um, that I call them Tinder for the workplace. So what they typically do is try and match your interests with somebody who looks a bit similar in terms of interests and suggest you go for a virtual coffee with them. I'm naturally an introvert and I have to say that made me feel quite uncomfortable, but I have talked to some of my extroverted friends who were equally uncomfortable with that. So I think that's probably not the way to go. And I think maybe if we probably it's not about the sort of dating service application. I think it's more an introduction uh, that you need. And again, that goes back to networking. How do I how do I get a mutually trusted person to basically say, you need to talk to this person here. Here's the introduction. How do you do that digitally? And I think there's a lot of work going on out there at the moment in in various of the universities looking at uh, trying to solve that problem. So much as well for me, it comes back to values as well and and, and perhaps purpose, because I guess one of the other things that as we do effectively, and I mean hopefully permanently move out of the lockdown era, we're going to be put back in touch with lots of things that we've missed as well. And one of the things that I was struck by is lots of things that are around our work um, are also important to us, whether it's the cities that might host football matches or have great theatres and concert venues, or it may be those transport systems that help us get from A to B. I guess we're going to be discovering lots of things also that are important to us that how we work kind of supports, you know, that our, our cities have been wounded, I think someone said, during the pandemic. Do you think that's going to sort of help us in our thinking around hybrid work too? I mean, hybrid work effectively always sits within an ecosystem that's much broader. And I think that urban rural discussion is a really interesting one in that London especially, I think, has been particularly damaged by the pandemic. Uh, I have, I've only been into London once and it was quite quiet. I believe it's a lot busier now. But, you know, often my reason to go into London for a meeting is there's usually a good show on that I can go <laughs> for the evenings. So it's a good excuse to go to a show, basically. So you can't underestimate the power of, of that, the magnetic power of urban environments. But as I said before, I think the opportunity, and again, that this is kind of the angle the Irish government is taking, especially especially is is around, well, how do we also regenerate a lot of the the more localised rural areas? And I think we shouldn't discount that because I think we we can't just have great cities that are are thriving. We also need sort of great areas outside the cities that are thriving that have those attractive amenities. And again, I think that the hyper-localisation trend that we saw at the very beginning of the pandemic, where we suddenly rediscovered our environment, our neighbourhood, our shops, our local coffee houses, um, I think I I would hate to see that die in terms of that 
sort of revitalization of, of, of the local neighborhoods. It's going to be a difficult balance, though. I, I mean, I think urban areas have a lot going for them. So that that's 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 the magnetic pull. But how do we kind of maybe share the riches a little bit more? And I do think the climate change one is 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 an interesting one to debate as well because i mean commute times were going up not down prior to the pandemic certainly in the uk um so do we need to commute every day and particularly if we're not doing a particularly green commute if we're getting in a car uh, should we be doing that all the time and certainly an angle on the research that uh, that we're looking at doing at the moment is how do we also make sure that we do this sustainably Important value there to be perhaps prioritised almost above all else, given some of the changes we're seeing. But I, I think what comes across, and I know these are important values for you, are the value of diversity almost at every level, whether it's in terms of people, communities, rural, urban spaces, and, and inclusivity as well, that we're really striving that someone isn't left out, left behind. And all of those values, as well as looking after this planet that we've been given to, to sort of look after, you know, should be informing all of the, the thinking about ways of working. Mm. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I, I think diversity, it's always an interesting one because diversity firstly implies that one size never fits all. So you can't have one solution that's going to go with everybody. I think, again, we've learned during the pandemic that actually running remote organisation does provide access to people that would maybe struggle to get into a physical office or to a physical event. So I have a, a, several friends who are uh, wheelchair bound and they, they've they've actually had a really beneficial 14 months because they they haven't had to to struggle to get on trains and and get to places they've been included in absolutely everything but i think you know there, there's also other things i mean the data around um just generally how women have coped with the pandemic and carers to be perfectly honest um showed that the burden of the care tended to fall on, on the woman um that's obviously some men had that as well but you know when you're trying to juggle work and the rest of your life particularly when you're obviously you know homeschooling i think it brought home actually the fact that caring is a really difficult thing to juggle with work and actually again offering more flexible work and we know i mean even bt's experience prior to the pandemic showed that you know flexible working does benefit carers. At one point, I think we had 97% of our women coming back after maternity leave, for example, which was very high. We were one of the first organisations to to offer things like flexible working. So, you know, we, we can't underestimate the fact that if I, if I say, okay, you've got to come back into an office, we may immediately be excluding a certain part of the population that will probably legitimately struggle uh, to, to juggle all of the demands of their of their lives or, you know, some of the restrictions that they have in their lives. So I think that's the beauty of hybrid, actually, is it doesn't exclude everybody. But obviously, it means that you can't do a simple one size fits all situation saying, hey, this isn't working, coming to an office. And that's why, as I said, my anxiety is if it doesn't work, people are going to default to oh, God, this isn't working, let's come back into an office. And rather than saying, well, what have we learned here? <laughs> um, what's worked? What hasn't worked? And let's try and sort of make sure that we can embrace this diversity piece. 
And I think the message there is that reinvention of work is not a passive process of just letting it happen. You have to actively engage with that task of trying to make work work for everyone. Absolutely. And that that in itself is quite difficult. <laughs> yes. Well, it, it may be better than Zoom fatigue. So um, yes. just to drop that <laughs> in one more time, the brand. Um, well, Nicola, I think we could talk for much, much longer because over 14 months, you've clearly been absorbing so much uh data, um, experiences, and uh, having time, I, I, I suspect, to think very deeply about some of these processes. Um, but I think, as you are familiar uh, with this being our second podcast together, um, we do tend to finish our podcast with an opportunity to reflect in a, in a rather different way, which is to think about the process of going into lockdown again. And if you could take three prominent or famous people with you, who would they be? Now, do you want me to remind you who you chose the last time in May of 2020? Oh, go on then. Well, your first crush, Harrison Ford, was, <laughs> was there uh, just before Rages of the Lost Ark called him away, I, I, I suspect. Jane Austen, with all her wonderful insights of, mm. of people and stories of lives. And finally, the remarkable Dolly Parton. <laughs> what a woman. Um... Yeah, and it was lovely to hear again, and, and the, so much work she's done for young people and literacy, and, and yeah. yeah, just it's it's a bit like you've been saying all along that the, the, you have to know so much about the people that you're with to grasp their value. Anyway, you've got a, you're, you've fourteen months in, you know, we're we're sort of perhaps teetering a little bit on on the final end of the lockdown phase, but um, if it were to happen again, would you take? some other people in there with you i may have got slightly slightly tired of harrison jane and, and dolly by now um so <laughs> may, maybe i need i need three others i mean off the top of my head firstly william shakespeare i mean good okay. lord firstly i'm i'm i am a huge shakespeare geek I set myself the challenge of seeing all of Shakespeare's plays before I was 30, and I just about managed it, including, you know, you've got to track down really obscure ones like King John, which are very rarely performed. But obviously, this guy is a fascinating character, uh, given that he's a sea of contradictions. And obviously, there's a huge debate as to whether it was actually William Shakespeare that wrote the plays because of this sea of contradictions. He's seemingly a simple rural guy from humble beginnings in Stratford-upon-Avon, and yet he can and write this incredible poetry and write about you know parts of the world that maybe he hadn't even been to so fair verona um why would a guy from stratford go to fair verona um so yeah i think william shakespeare um okay. real william shakespeare needs to to appear in my house well tell jane kindly that uh, he might have <laughs> someone different at least Absolutely. Not, not, I, I mean, I, I'd love to have Jane along as well. But Albert Einstein, I think, would also be an interesting company as well. He just looks like, a, well, firstly, an incredible thinker. But also, he looks very good fun. Yeah, I, yeah. I think, you know, those pictures of him with his tongue out is always <laughs> entertaining. So, yeah, not that I would understand. I mean, I did A-level physics. That's probably about as far as I, I got. So I, I doubt I would necessarily understand all of his theories uh, from his own mouth. But he'd be an interesting guest. And I think, um, given that those two are dead and, uh, and men um, I, I'm going to have to go someone who's both alive and a woman um, who also I think would be tremendous fun uh, but I have to say my favourite actress of the moment is Olivia Coleman. 
Um, and uh-huh. obviously, she has achieved national uh, treasure status, not just by winning an Oscar, but also, you know, she literally has been the queen um, in the crown as well. So uh, I think it's really surprising when you look at some of her early work. I have to say, I think the first time I became really aware of her was back in 2012 when they did that um, the spoof of, uh, of the Olympics uh, where she was Hugh Bonneville's oh, secretary yeah, yeah, with yeah. a massive crush on him that she couldn't articulate. Um, and she very deservedly won a BAFTA, I think, for that she's just gone from strength to strength and i think well firstly listening to her interviews she sounds like a really fun lady as well <laughs> yeah she's she's done a time in comedy as as well as those mm. uh, profoundly moving films and series but what's what strikes me i mean and, and perhaps is to speak to what you've been talking of throughout is what a group of fiercely intelligent yet compassionate figures going i was reminded of the letter einstein wrote with freud about nuclear bombs through to, well, actually, <laughs> I guess having Shakespeare and Olivia Colman, you might um, even put <laughs> put on a few performances, but very much conveying that sort of compassion for, uh, I guess, our, our fellow humans and for the planet we're, we're inhabiting. So I think 14 months in, that sounds like a really nice evolution. <laughs> We are going to still let you take something that you could put on a device like a tablet or phone in terms of some media. So I suppose you could take a a few Austin novels or some of Dolly's music or even a Harrison film, which I think you said he was in every one of your top 10 films. Yeah, I think I picked Blade Runner the last time. You Um, did, you did, which was a very, very good choice at every level. Anything media-wise, book, film, music, TV, actually theatrical production even? Crikey, wow. Wow, that's opened it up entirely now. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, it's it's really difficult, but I think, um, as you know, Richard, I'm quite into Game of Thrones, and, and you were in ga- into Game of Thrones way before I was. Um, I, was. I, I was very late <laughs> to the party, um, and I haven't yet attempted a rewatch. I know a few people have during the pandemic, but that's certainly probably something I should rewatch at some point very soon. Accompanied, I, I think the last time I, I nominated chocolate as my treat, and I have to say that's still going to be my treat because, frankly, I. I can't live without chocolate. Yeah, I, I, I knew that when we got to the luxury, if it wasn't chocolate, I would have assumed some sort of alien abduction had occurred and you'd been replaced. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will send. Um, well, let, let, let's um, nail that down a bit more. Any particular brand? type of chocolate this I'm time? still sticking with Hotel Chocolat. Oh, I mean, okay. I, I think, frankly, as soon as you've eaten Hotel Chocolat, you're kind of spoilt. Um, so, yeah. Right. I have a very large box in my cupboard at the moment, which I will be working through in the next week or so. <laughs> <laughs> well, after all the Zoom fatigue, I mean, this is sounding more and more like a, a product placement festival between <laughs> us. But I, I, I'm sure that's going to be very well deserved. And also, you know, we are learning that chocolate has really positive impacts on our health via the microbiome in, within us. Yes, yeah. yeah, so that's why I'm eating more of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think our public health colleagues will be utterly admiring of that. And I just want to say from all of us at Good Thinking, and I'm sure for the very many listeners to these podcasts, that was a great opportunity to reflect upon, I think, what you're calling the zedonk of the the sort mm. of working world, really, which is don't just look backwards, but actually look to see something new and new opportunities before us, but with all that compassion and inclusivity and recognizing diversity and collaboration mixed in with it. So thank you again, Nicola. It's and, a pleasure. Um, 
I have to say, I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts as we emerge, hopefully, from, from the pandemic. So thank it's you. It's going to be interesting. I keep saying, saddle up the Zadonk and hold on tight. <laughs> yes, I'm going to have to go and search for that now. I'm going to have to see what they actually look like. Thank you again. Thank you. 